I brought show and tell this morning. Do you know what this little thing is right here? Have you ever seen it? Have you ever seen a, or done a magic eye puzzle in the paper? That's what that is. Well, the instructions say that you had to hold the image really close to your nose and then slowly bring it away, and a hidden 3D image will magically appear. Now, how many of you have done that and able to do it? Um, well, I tried many, many times without any success. Um, and I endured merciless ridicule from my less visually challenged members of the family who claimed that they had mastered the technique. And then one day, as if by magic, the concealed image did appear. It was there all along. But in order to view what seemed invisible, a different way of seeing was required. And one that really meant I had less control. Now, those what's wrong with this puzzles in the Highlights magazine? How many of you grew up on Highlights magazine? And, you know, I used to love it because that was the first thing I do is those what's wrong with this picture puzzles. Well, they function in much the same way. The challenge is to find objects within an everyday scene, objects that are visible but located in the wrong places. In order to find them, you must look for what's wrong with the picture. It's amazing what things are there to be seen if we only know where and how to look. It's a true story. One night, my husband and I put our two-year-old son to bed. Later, while watching TV, that feeling came over us. You know that feeling when almost imperceptibly the atmosphere in the room shifts and somehow you know you're being watched. Well, sensing this feeling, we looked around and there in the middle of the doorway was our son standing perfectly still and quiet, covered from head to toe with a baby blanket over his head, everything, like he had borrowed Harry Potter's invisibility cloak. <laughs> the words standing perfectly still and quiet were not descriptors we typically use to describe this child. So mystified, we studied him. What was he doing? Why was he doing it? And then it dawned on us. In his toddler's way of perceiving reality, he believed that he was invisible and that if he could not see us, we could not see him. Our eyes can play tricks on us. Perspective. How we see makes a difference in what we see. Things are not always as they seem, yet oftentimes they are exactly as they seem. The ancient crafters of scripture sought to give voice to this reality by using poetry and story to describe their encounters with the invisible one. In 2016, these images and ideas can seem inaccessible, opaque, irrelevant to our lives. The Cotton Patch version of the book of Hebrews is Clarence Jordan's attempt to southern-splain the language in Hebrews so we southerners can get it. Listen as Lisa and Philip read Hebrews 11, Cotton Patch.
style. We are not cowards doomed to failure, but people of faith finding meaning to life. Now faith is the turning of dreams into deeds. It is betting your life on the unseen realities. And by so relating our lives to this invisible one, we become aware that history is woven to God's design. The seen event is a projection of the unseen intent. For anyone who is serious about the God life must stake everything on the fact that God, the unseen one, is. And amply rewards those who make knowing God their quest. Living by the unseen, Abraham obeyed when he was called upon to depart for a country which was going to be his inheritance. And he set out without knowing where he was heading. Living by the unseen, he homesteaded in the promised land like a foreigner. For he had his heart set on a permanent city whose architect and general contractor was God. Living by the unseen, Sarah herself had a full-term pregnancy even though she had passed her childbearing time. She was sure all along that God would carry through on what was promised. So it was through her that one man, practically dead, sired descendants as countless as the stars in the sky and as numberless as grains of sand on the ocean beach. Holding fast to their life by the unseen, these all died without experiencing the final outcome. But they did see it from a distance and cheered for it. They openly admitted that they themselves were aliens and vagabonds in society. People who talk in this way are actually referring to the fact that they have their hearts set on a land they can call home. If they were really attached to their birthplace, they would have plenty of chances to return to it. But as it is, they are yearning for a better land that is a spiritual one. Therefore God was not embarrassed to have them call him God. In, In fact, fact, he, he had, had a community, community already for them. Thank you. Did you hear it? People of faith find meaning to life. Faith is turning is the turning of dreams into deeds. It is betting your life on unseen realities. What we see is a projection of the unseen one's intent. Dr. T.C. Smith was a prominent New Testament scholar and a very courageous truth teller. Referring to Hebrews 11, T.C. claims that no one should ever consider faith as inferior because it is not based on empirical evidence. In fact, faith is the proper mode of knowledge in relation to unseen realities. There is a depth about faith which we in our conventional piety have failed to comprehend. If T.C. is right, 
then how do we stop swimming in the shallow end of an infantile faith that requires proof and certainty and reach for the depth to which he refers? How can we find deeper meaning in our lives? The writer of Hebrews suggests that this process calls for a different way of seeing. Faith is a matter not just of what we see, but how we see what we see, of learning to recognize and train our inner and outer eyes to focus on the invisible one who imbues the visible with life and meaning. There are multiple ways to perceive reality because all of us make individual meaning and interpret what we see from our own vantage points. Faith calls us to take off the baby blankets that prevent us from seeing and perceiving reality from any perspective other than our own. Faith is mastering the technique of the magic eye and involves looking carefully to discern what is wrong with the picture before us. Ultimately, faith compels us to look for what is askew in the picture within us. Mystics call this process seeing through one's third eye or one's inner eye. We've talked about that before. Now, that's all well and good if you're a mystic, you say. But I'm not a mystic. This inner eye stuff sounds silly at best and maybe even crazy at worst. Give me something on which I can base my faith that helps me live each day in the real world with all its temptations and challenges, joy and pain, stress and complexity. Okay, fair enough. In his commentary on Hebrews, Ed Gooming Knight says, the noun translated faith can be rendered trust, commitment, belief, and faithfulness. Active faith enables one to make visible what is not seen, to image or to perceive the invisible in such a way that the invisible becomes the really real. Let me read that again. Edgar McKnight, who is as cerebral a human being as I think I have ever met. I'm his failure at teaching Greek. (laughs) Edgar McKnight. The noun translated faith can be rendered trust, commitment, belief, and faithfulness. And active faith enables one to make visible what is not seen, to image or to perceive the invisible in such a way that the invisible becomes the really real. Hmm. Listen again to the writer of Hebrews. By relating our lives to the invisible one, we become aware that history is woven to God's design. Anyone who is serious about the God life must stake everything on the fact that God, the unseen one, is and amply rewards those who make knowing God their quest. Relate to the invisible one. Make knowing God our quest. When we really get to know someone, we begin to focus more on the invisible things about them, don't we? We want to know what pleases them. We seek to see things through their eyes and to walk in their shoes. We make it a point to learn what they care about, and we find ourselves caring about those things too. The very same should be true of our relationship with God. Glimpsing the unmistakable presence of God in the real world in which we live 
requires relational action. Trusting that God is and that God is available to be known. Seeking to know God and to understand what God cares about. Developing our own capacity to see and to care about what God cares about. Our family vacation in 2010 coincided with the 50th anniversary of the publishing of To Kill a Mockingbird. We decided to pass the miles by listening to the book on CD. We were so engrossed in the experience that before driving into our driveway on the last day of our trip, we took three additional turns around our neighborhood trying to finish the book. (laughs) Atticus Finch is the book's driving force and moral compass. He impresses upon his children a certain way of seeing that makes a difference in the way they relate to the people around them. Early in the book, he tells them, you never really understand a person until you consider things from his point of view, until you climb inside of his skin and walk around in it. This is a recurring theme, as Atticus's young daughter, Scout, the book's narrator, recounts the tale of a town grappling with prejudice and violence in the throes of changes and perceived threats to ingrained assumptions of privilege, class, race, and power. The final scene places Scout on the porch of the Radley Place, a vantage point that offers her an opportunity to test Atticus's theory for herself. As Scout stands that autumn night on Boo Radley's porch for the first time. She sees the world, her world, from a different perspective. From the perspective of the strange, reclusive man she has been fearful of and curious about all her life. The man who left her little gifts in the bend of an oak tree. The man who had saved her life earlier that evening. I had never seen our neighborhood from this angle, Scout thought. In my mind, the night faded. It was daytime and the neighborhood was busy. Then summertime and two children scampered down the sidewalk toward a man approaching in the distance. The man waved and the children raced to him. Now autumn. And as children trotted to and fro around the corner, the day's woes and triumphs on their faces. They stopped in an oak tree, delighted, puzzled, apprehensive. Winter. And as children shivered at the front gate, silhouetted against a blazing house. Summer. And he watched his children's heart break. Autumn again, and Boo's children needed him. Atticus was right. One time he said, you never really know a man until you stand in his shoes and walk around in them. Just standing on the Radley porch was enough. God is our Boo Radley. When we take the time, to stand on God's porch and look out on our human neighborhood from God's perspective. We take a step in our quest to know God. 
From that vantage point, we begin to realize how much God already knows and loves us despite any distance, judgment, or even fear we may have felt. When we begin to recognize that God sees and knows us intimately, we open ourselves to the transforming compassion of God. As we come to know this heart of grace, we find the capacity within our own hearts to become more faithful bearers of that grace and love to others. It's like mastering the magic eye. When the image of the invisible God, that divine spark residing in all living things, begins to come into focus, our lives can never be the same. Just standing on God's porch is enough to transform the way we see and know. This is not always a comfortable or comforting process, as the first chapter of Isaiah reveals. This chapter begins with angry words attributed to God. If you think of Hebrews 11 as a biblical version of the magic eye, then Isaiah 1 is the biblical version of what's wrong with this picture. This angry rant must be read in the soft light of grace and be filtered through the lens of Jesus' prophetic life of teaching and teachings about compassionate justice. Jesus stood in a long line of Hebrew prophets who claimed that they stood on God's porch, that they saw through God's eyes and felt God's feelings. Isaiah was one of those prophets. His words related to a dire time in Israelite history when the city of Jerusalem was besieged by a conquering army, the countryside lay in ruins, and Judah's way of life was threatened. Dire times call for desperate measures. What Isaiah observed when standing on God's porch compelled him to issue this powerful wake-up call to his people claiming it came straight from God and demanding that they look within themselves to see how their behavior contributed to their plight. Isaiah's words, harsh though they are, must be read and heard for what they are. Anguished longings from the grieving heart of a misunderstood God whose children do not care to know their divine parent who have forsaken their home and become utterly estranged from God and from each other. Failing to recognize their own human family members, they have grown distrustful and resorted to hatred and violence, leaving one another broken and bleeding with no one to tend their wounds. Years later, Jesus echoes these same sentiments in Matthew 23 as he looks out over Jerusalem and cries, Jerusalem, Jerusalem. How often have I desired to gather your children together as a mother hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you were not willing. See, your house is left to you desolate. If you listen carefully to the prophetic tradition in both Hebrew scripture and the Gospels, you begin to understand God's deep hurt and grief at the recognition that willful children continually forget where home is and are mistaken about what God wants from them. That this hurt is laden with anger and frustration should not come as any surprise to us. Parents know and children come to know that hurt often disguises itself as anger or judgment. Eugene Peterson's paraphrase of Isaiah 1 minces no words. 
Quit your worship charades. I can't stand your trivial religious games. I'm sick of your religion, religion, religion while you go right on singing. When you put on your next prayer performance, I'll be looking the other way. No matter how long or loud or often you pray, I'll not be listening. And do you know why? Because you've been tearing each other to pieces and your hands are bloody. Go home and wash up. Clean up your act. Sweep your lives clean of your evil doings so I don't have to look at them any longer. Say no to wrong. Learn to do good. Work for justice. Help the down and out. Stand up for the homeless. Go to bat for the defenseless. The meaning is clear. Persistent inattention to injustice falsifies our praise. Blindness to the plight of others is blindness to God. When we diminish God's creation, we mar God's image. That's sin. Maybe Isaiah 1 should be required reading for anyone wanting to assume public office or stand in a pulpit or offer thoughts, prayers, flowers, and candles for the victims of violence and oppression and then go sanctimoniously back to our privileged lives feeling good that we stood up for those victims. What does God want from us? A most surprising answer is found in Isaiah 1, verse 18. We just sang it. God wants to sit down and talk. Come, let's reason this out. Can you humans understand that the invisible and the visible are deeply connected? That the boundary between us is very thin? Look at this from my point of view. If you want to extend your hands to me in prayer, then extend your hands to the most vulnerable. What you have done to the least of these, you have done to me. Sometimes your seeing is broken. Let your worship be the corrective lens you need to learn to see and care about what I see and care about. I don't need worship charades. I want your eyes ears, feet, and hearts invested in the living reality that I called into being and entrusted to your care. Come out from under your self-absorbed blankets, take a look around, and see the really real. See me within and around you. That's what God says. Like Boo Radley, God has seen our plight and saved our lives. And like Scout, it's time for us to let go of our mistrust, take God's arm, and walk gratefully home. Time to stand on the divine porch, looking out on the whole of God's neighborhood, to catch a glimpse of the invisible made visible in all its complexity and beauty, teeming with life, and to say it's all good. God wants us to see what the prophets saw. What Jesus saw, that our seeing is sometimes broken, that we humans fail time and again to feel the divine gaze upon our own pain or to glimpse the divine spark within every living thing. The unseen intent 
uniting all creation, teeming within everything that is. What would our world be like if we looked for that spark? Not denying the differences among us, but looking first for that common spark of divinity in the neighbor whose political views are opposite from our own, or the homeless person standing at the intersection with a cardboard sign, or the homosexual couple bringing their new baby to the playgroup, or the Muslim co-worker we can't bring ourselves to trust, or the ecosystem we destroy to build the newest subdivision? What if we learn to look first for that divine spark? God wants us to trust that those who make knowing God their quest will be amply rewarded with ever-deepening measures of joy, grace, peace, and compassion and an ever-widening ability to glimpse the invisible amidst the visible, but that our vision is always and forever being corrected. The quest to know God's heart and to see with God's eyes is bathed in grace and is never complete. Archbishop Oscar Romero was martyred in the 1990s because he resisted unjust, violent, and powerful political forces by standing in solidarity with some of his country's poorest, most vulnerable, least visible people. These words are attributed to him. We actually used them the first time we ever did D-cubed as we were beginning our discernment process as a congregation. It helps now and then, Romero says, To step back and take the long view, we accomplish in our lifetime only a fraction of the magnificent enterprise that is God's work. Nothing we do is complete. The kingdom of God always lies beyond us. No prayer fully expresses our faith. No confession brings perfection. No program accomplishes the church's mission. No set of goals and objectives includes everything. This is what we're about. We plant seeds that one day will grow. We water seeds already planted, knowing that they hold future promise. We provide yeast that produces effects beyond our capabilities. We cannot do everything, and there is a sense of liberation in realizing that. For we are workers, not master builders. Ministers, not messiahs. We are all seers of a future That is not just our own. Deeper knowing and clearer vision come as we choose one step at a time to see ourselves and others as God sees us and in so doing relate our visible lives to the unseen one. No confession brings perfection, Romero says, but confessing our blindness and our tunnel vision is a beginning a way to resist denial and blame and begin to take full responsibility for the messes we make of our lives. A new vantage point from which to see more clearly. A porch from which to make knowing God our continual quest. Let it be so.